I hate missing our time together at the well. So if this is your first time, we're studying the book of Leviticus, and we try to do things here on Sunday afternoons that maybe we wouldn't do Sunday mornings, like go verse by verse by verse by verse through a book like Leviticus. Uh, and so uh, most of you know, if you're in our study, it's an exciting book. And uh, the images and the pictures that God has put there makes the Bible come alive. And of course, Jesus is on almost every page of Leviticus, which makes it such an exciting book. But of course, Leviticus is maybe the most ignored book in the entire Bible by modern Christians. And uh, so uh, we're trying to retrieve something that I think has been lost in modern Christianity, and that is the amazing elements that God put in the Old Testament that help us understand the New Testament. It's Leviticus that is quoted over and over again in the book of Hebrews, like 13 times alone in the book of Hebrews. Leviticus is quoted. So it makes sense that Hebrews is one of the most confusing, controversial books in the New Testament because the average Christian doesn't know anything about Leviticus, which is the foundation of the book of Hebrews. So that's why studying the Old Testament is really so important. So we're going to study tonight, I think, Leviticus 15. I think it's been so long since I was here, I'm not really sure. Is it Leviticus 15? Leviticus 12. I, I recorded Leviticus 15 this week. All right, that's what it is. Actually, I got up to Leviticus 17 this week, so I'm recording ahead these lessons. If you can't be here, they're all online, so you can keep up with our study even if you're not here live. But the thing you get live is uh, open Q&A. So when you get done and we get done with the lesson, guys, we'll talk about anything you want to. Uh, we'll start with Leviticus and the lesson, but really want to open it up to whatever you want to ask and just... Uh, Talk about the Bible and the amazing word that God has given us. So let's pray and we'll get rolling. Jesus, thank you for a chance to study your word together. Lord, thank you for the spirit of God that you've called the spirit of truth. Would you guide us and teach us and transform us tonight, I pray, to be more like the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to our study of Leviticus. We're in Leviticus chapter 12. This chapter is a short chapter for Leviticus, but it contains some of the deepest and most richest truth that we're going to study in this entire book. There's a lot here, even though there's not a lot here. So let's get right into this. Let's read the whole chapter all the way through Leviticus 12, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived... And born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. 
And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has born a male or a female. And if she's not able to bring a lamb, she, shall, she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Uh, there's a lot here and I'm going to tell you, uh, some of this is going to make some of us blush just a little, but I'm going to assume that this is a mature audience studying Leviticus. So I'm just going to speak openly and going to teach, uh, hopefully in a way that has sensitivity. But honestly, uh, some of this is a little bit graphic that we're going to talk about. But, but this much I am absolutely confident of. Romans 15 and verse 4. Remember what it says. It says, For whatsoever written aforetime was written for our learning. In other words, what Paul is teaching is the Old Testament was written to give us understanding of the New Testament. He was writing to this New Testament church at Rome. And so uh, this is a lot of important, amazing detail tonight that God is going to show us of some amazing New Testament doctrinal truth. So Leviticus 12 deals, of course, with uh, a woman who's given birth either to a little boy or a little girl. has to do with her customary uh, uh, purifying as well as uh, circumcision. And so a lot of people, once again, have looked at this chapter and just thought, well, this just has to do uh, maybe with God putting parameters in place for cleanliness and personal hygiene uh, of, for these ancient Hebrew women. Now, once again, just like our study of clean and unclean foods, there's probably an element of truth to this. Just from a, a hygiene standpoint, one could argue that God is clearly uh, putting some parameters in place for the personal health and hygiene of these ancient women at a time when hygiene was uh, not practiced and frankly not understood. And so people look at this chapter and they look at the introduction here of maybe circumcision and they think, well, God is introducing uh, the institution of circumcision among Hebrews males as uh, a health practice. And once again, one can say that this is indeed a health practice, even in our modern society. While circumcision has become rather controversial in these latter days, uh, it's been part of Judeo-Christian culture for many, many, many generations. And from just a clinical perspective, one can see why uh, it is a matter of personal cleanliness for males and often practiced for medical reasons for just that reason. But, but once again, God is doing so much more than just the physical nature of what we can see here as it pertains to health in human hygiene, far more significantly is the symbolism spiritually that God wants us to learn. God is illustrating this in Leviticus chapter 12. He's, he's illustrating there is something wrong with man's birth. 
a common teaching that is woven clear throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. There is something wrong with man's birth, and that is the true teaching uh, and reasoning of Leviticus chapter 12 as God introduces circumcision and how a woman was to be ceremonially purified after having given birth. And we can see this theme throughout all of Scripture. Jesus said, you must be born again. Twice in John 3, he's teaching, hey, your first birth was not enough. There's something wrong with your first birth. It is insufficient. You need a second birth. Uh, even the psalmist recognized this very thing that God is teaching. Look at what it says in Psalm 51 and verse 5. This is after David had sinned, and he is lamenting his sin with Bathsheba. He says these words, Behold, uh, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, what is he recognizing here? He is recognizing the theology and the reality historically of the fallen nature of humanity of which he is numbered. Uh, what he's doing here is not talking about his mama having an illicit sexual relationship and conceiving. No, he's simply expressing the fact that he was born with sin. Uh, saying, I was born in sin. In the same way my father was a sinner, he passed that sin nature onto me, his son. Uh, and that's what David is recognizing here. And it began, he says, in his mother's womb, that he was a sinner from the moment of conception. And that's the reality uh, of all of us. As descendants of Adam, we are born with Adam's fallen nature. Romans 5.12 says, As by one man's sin, that's Adam, death entered the world, so death passed on all men, for all have sinned. Here's the reality. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. From the moment of conception, we're a sinner before we've ever sinned because we inherited that sin nature from Adam, who is the father of us all. You know the story. God said, don't eat of that tree, and the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, here's the reality. Because we were in Adam. He's the father of us all. Because we were in him, we all died with him. And because we all died with him, that is the reason Jesus said we must be born again as descendants of Adam. Remember Genesis 5.3, what's it say? Adam begat a son Seth in his own image, in his own likeness. Now remember, Adam had been created in God's image, in God's likeness. He was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the, the earth. With whose image? Not his. God's. He was to reproduce God's image, to be fruitful and fill the earth with other sons of God and daughters of God that would all bear the image of God, all that would have the triune nature of God. But of course, when Adam sinned, what happened? He died spiritually instantly. He was destined to die physically eventually, but he died spiritually instantly, separated from God, now completely. He had a living body, he had a living soul, but a dead spirit. No longer did he have the triune image of God. No longer. Because he had a dead spirit. And that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. And that is why he could only now, in his offspring, reproduce his image. That fallen image that we all have from the moment we come into this world. And that is why, quite frankly, 
Uh, you know, I love um, I love all the babies in our church. I like going down the nursery, and you know, as I as I thank the nursery workers on occasion, just talking to them. I love these little ones running around here. These little these little babies are so cute. But here's the deal: they're cute, but they're not as innocent as they look. And it won't be long until that nature of sin begins to rise up within them. Let me tell you something: by the time that little cutie is six months of age. He's losing his innocence. You know why I know? Because a six-month-old six month baby knows how to manipulate his mama. He has figured it out. And by the time he's two, you'll have his first temper tantrum. He will have said his first word, and it won't be yours. It will be mine. See, that's that sin nature born in. Uh, it won't be long before he tells his first lie, and nobody had to teach him how. You see, that's what David meant when he said, In sin did my mother conceive me. From my conception, I was a sinner, and that is why I now sin. And that is why every single one of us desperately need a Redeemer. That's why Jesus said twice, We must be born again. We're born the first time in Adam's fallen image, with Adam's fallen nature. We need to be born again as God's children, not Adam's children, with God's image not Adam's image. And that, my friends, is the real teaching going on in Leviticus 12, and we haven't really even gotten into the text. I want to take you back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 13 really illustrates this truth for us in a different way. Look at what it says in Exodus 13 and verse 11. I want you to see God is laying out to the Israelites what to do when they come into the promised land. He says these words, in Exodus 13 and verse 11, it shall come, it shall be, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The male shall be the Lord's, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, I want you to see what God is teaching here in Exodus chapter 13. God instructs the Israelites to give the firstborn male to the Lord as a sacrifice. The only exception was the firstborn of a man or the firstborn of a donkey. You say, what's the difference? I'll let you figure it out. <laughs> Could be. There's not that much of a difference. What I do know is that the wild donkey is a picture of a lost man without Christ. Job chapter 11, verse 12. Listen carefully. It says, for the empty-headed man would be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. You see, in some way, uh, God is saying the offspring of a donkey and the offspring of a man in some capacity, uh, in, in some way, there's some similarity. And uh, uh, the reality is, um, if, if a Hebrew was to take the firstborn of a male, he was to sacrifice a lamb. And the firstborn of a donkey, he was to either do one of two things, either 
bring a lamb as a sacrifice and sacrifice it to the Lord. And if he would not redeem it with a lamb, he was to break that donkey's neck. Now, I want you to see what God just might be teaching here. Listen, the firstborn of a man or the firstborn of a donkey could be redeemed by sacrificing a lamb. And the imagery begins to emerge. In other words, if you had a male child, God said, the firstborn belongs to me also. But because Israel, unlike their pagan neighbors, did not practice animal, or I should say, uh, child sacrifice or human sacrifice like the pagans did, they were to substitute a lamb in the place of that firstborn little baby boy. Now, what God was doing for hundreds and hundreds of years was painting a picture. God was painting a picture of what he would one day do to redeem us with the blood of a lamb, his own firstborn son, his only begotten son. And every Jewish home with the birth of this firstborn male child was painting a picture of what God would do with his own firstborn Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God. But not only were the Jews to redeem the firstborn males with the blood of a lamb, they were to redeem the firstborn of a donkey with the blood of a lamb. All the other livestock, they were to actually bring that firstborn male to the Lord as a sacrifice. But a donkey, they were to do one of two things. First of all, they were to redeem it with the blood of a lamb, the the donkey, a picture of that man born in that natural condition. You could redeem it with a lamb or you could break its neck. And those were the only two options God gives that donkey and the owner of that donkey. And by the way, those are the only two options God gives a man, live or die. Now, You can bow your neck, and guess what? Eventually, God will have to break it. Or you can simply choose to come by way of the blood of a lamb. You see, somebody someday says, well, I'm not going to bow my knee to Jesus. And and, uh, they continue to have that stiff neck, and they bow their neck before God. But, But God is trying to teach in some way, Uh, One day, your neck is going to be broken. Listen, I have broken the body of my own son so that I might not have to break your neck. But either way, one day, uh, you're going to have to choose to live or die. And God is clearly illustrating, I have a substitute for you. God says, I love you. I want to redeem you. I want to give my life for you. Uh, You don't deserve it, but because I love you, I freely want to give it. If you accept my substitute, listen, you can live, but those are the only two options. If you will not accept my substitute, the blood of a lamb, there's no other option but that you die. In the day you eat through, you shall surely die. In sin you were conceived. The wages of sin is death. For as by one man's sin, death entered the world, so death passed on all men. For all have sinned. Now, come back with me to Leviticus chapter 12. I want you to see now what God's doing here, uh, beginning in verse 1. Leviticus chapter 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, 
the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. Understand, God's trying to teach us and tell us. She who gives birth is unclean. Now, why is a woman who gives birth unclean? In the very last chapter, God was teaching the difference between that which is clean and that which is unclean. Now, why is God now teaching that a woman who has given birth is unclean? I'll tell you why. Because God is not saying that a lady who gives birth is unclean because of her poor character, or because she's been immoral, or because she's been sinful. He is reminding you that she has given birth to something dead. Remember in the last chapter, if you touched something that was dead, if you touched a carcass uh, that was considered unclean, you became unclean until evening. And what we're learning here is that we all come into this world physically alive, but what? Spiritually dead. From the moment that Adam sinned, all of his posterity would be under sin's penalty. That means stillborn spiritually. And so God is reminding us there's something wrong with man's birth. There is something wrong with our physical birth. Something is wrong with our first birth. Our mothers gave birth on the day we were born to something that was dead that needed to be born again. That's why Jesus said twice, marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. A woman has given birth to a child who is alive physically, but very much dead spiritually. And that is why as Nicodemus came to Jesus that night in John chapter 3, Jesus was going to tell something to him he was not ready for. It would go right over the top of his head. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You want to enter the kingdom of God? You must be born again. What do you mean? Must, must my, have to enter into my mother's womb again? How does one enter once again into his mother's womb? Right over the top of his head, Jesus said, look, you didn't quite get it. Let me say it again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. Jesus was teaching, listen, your first birth was a flesh birth. Flesh is fallen. Flesh is sinful. You must be born of God's Spirit, a spiritual birth. And only then do you become alive as God always did in 10. Now, Leviticus chapter 12, uh, I want you to see something else in verse 2. She was unclean for seven days. Seven, of course, is the number of completion. What is God doing here? I want you to re just remind you something else in 2 uh, Peter chapter 3. Remember what Peter would say, that a thousand years to God is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. Now, there's a pattern of sevens in Scripture. You already know seven is God's number of completion, but the number seven is especially crucial to the Jews as God would give the Jews a series of sevens. God's seven sevens. He told the Jews to work for six days, rest on the seventh. He told the Jews to uh, work the land for six years, rest it in the seventh. He would tell them to work for six months and rest it on the seventh. He's setting up a pattern of sevens, of working six, resting on the seventh. Beginning with creation week, God himself beginning this pattern of sevens. He worked for six days, rested on the seventh, because he's setting up a pattern 
of working six, resting on the seventh. Remember, a thousand years has a day, a day is as a thousand years. And what we know in some way is that mankind has been at work on the earth for about 6,000 years or six days based on Bishop Usher's dating of the genealogies in the book of Genesis, which we know is not precise, it's not exact, it's approximate, but approximately speaking, mankind, we know as, as we know it, has been at work on the earth for about 6,000 years. He dated Adam's creation to about 4004 BC. The implication being now is 2,000 years AD, which means we're in the sixth day, we're right on the threshold of the seventh day, that pattern of resting, taking a Sabbath rest on the seventh day, that's going to be a millennial age, a thousand years of peace and rest is coming to planet earth, and we are right on the threshold of the seventh day. Now that ought to be exciting to any of us, because what we're seeing here is that this fallen condition of creation that God is teaching now, through the birth of these babies and this woman who is now unclean for seven days. Listen, there's coming a day that God is going to completely cleanse all that was lost in the garden because of sin. Now, after illustrating uh, that we are unclean and after illustrating that we're born in sin, God immediately gives us the hope of salvation. I want you to remember that. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. He's trying to give us this hope for salvation. After illustrating our need for redemption, illustrating that we're all born in sin, that we're all born dead, though you're alive physically, you're very much dead spiritually, he wants to remind you that he has hope for you, that he has hope to bring about everything that was lost in the garden because of sin. Now, uh, I want you to see that God continues here uh, with this sign of circumcision. Look at what it says that she is to do with this little baby boy in verse 3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Uh, and he is repeating this rite of circumcision that he shared already to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. God gives the Hebrews the sign of circumcision and it's one of the most beautiful pictures of what God has done and will do. At the moment of our salvation, it's more than just a medical or a clinical practice for health and cleanliness and personal hygiene, most amazing and beautiful pictures of our salvation is this Hebrew rite of circumcision. Now, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14, Hey guys, for the sake of time, not going to read it. You read it on your own if you want to. But here's what happens. For the first time, uh, God gives uh, the Abrahamic uh, line, the Jews, the Hebrews, this sign. And this sign of circumcision was to be the seal of the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. And God is very clear what to do here. A man's reproductive organ is the giver of life. And he was to take the flesh of his foreskin on the eighth day of that little male baby. And he was to, he was to cut the flesh from off uh, the male organ that gives life. Now, here's what I want you to see. Genesis 17, Abraham is 99 years old. He's well past the age where he's able to give life or reproduce life. 
his wife, Syriai, is 90 years of age. She's been barren all her life. Now she's way past childbearing years. Uh, it tells us in this passage that their bodies are dead, in case there's any misunderstanding what God is doing. Uh, their bodies are dead. And what that means is they cannot give life. Their bodies are lifeless. They cannot reproduce life. They cannot give life. And at this time is when God gives Abraham uh, this sign of circumcision. It is to be an outward sign of this everlasting covenant that God has made with him. This everlasting covenant that the Jews, the Hebrews, would be the covenant people of promise, the bearer of the seed of Genesis 3.15, that through them one day, the Savior King, the Redeemer, would one day emerge, and they would live in this land known as the promised land forever and ever and ever. And uh, the Abrahamic covenant has not been revoked. It's an everlasting covenant. It's what God says. How can something everlasting be revocable, as some would teach today? No, no, there's no replacement theology in the Bible. God has not replaced the Jews with me and you, the church. This is an everlasting covenant. It's still in effect today. And the sign of that covenant would be circumcision. Now, I want you to see something else. Romans 4, 18 through 20. Once again, just jot it down. Don't have time to read it. But if there's any misunderstanding what's going on here, the apostle Paul repeats the same thing. It says Abraham's body was dead. He wants to make sure you know this was a miraculous thing that God was about to do when Sarah would conceive this baby known as Isaac. Hebrews chapter 11 repeats it once again. Uh, their bodies were dead. Abraham's was dead. Sarah's was dead. Now, incidentally, back in Genesis 17, guess what? That's where God would change both of their names from Abram to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude or father of nations. Syriai, uh, her name would change from, um, basically it would mean uh, kind of, well, honestly, it means kind of a nag, if you want to know the truth. Syriai, she must have been kind of a handful to live with, at least at one time. But she would have her name changed to Sarah, which means princess. Now, not so coincidentally, check this out. All God would do to change their names, you can't see it in English, you can see it in the Hebrew, all he would do to change their names was insert the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet right into the middle of their names. It'd go from Abram to Abraham, Syriai to Sarah. He would do it with the fifth letter. And I don't think, again, that is any coincidence whatsoever. You know the number seven, God's number of completion. But do you know the number five in biblical numerology? The number five is almost always associated with death. Notice these were people who were dead. Their bodies were dead. They could not give life. God inserts the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the number five, associated often with death. What is God teaching? It's obvious. Before they could bear fruit and give life, they had to die. You see, living the fruitful life begins when we ourselves choose to die. And until you've chosen to die, you can never, ever be fully alive. In order for Abraham and Sarah to bear fruit and reproduce, they both had to die. And both of them, in some way, had to shed blood. It's a blood covenant. Sarah, through childbirth, 
and Abraham through circumcision. Now, I'm going to say this as delicately as I know how, all right? But this is what's going on. The symbolism is amazing. A man's reproductive organ was meant to give life, but it could only give death. Remember Adam, his seed, as he went into the intimacy with his bride Eve, was to reproduce immortality, sons of God and daughters of God that would all bear the image of God and live forever like God. But because he sinned, and the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Not only did he die, but his seed died with him. His posterity was all sold under sin's penalty. So consequently, that seed inside of Adam that was meant to give life as an eternal life could now only give death. Life physically, but death spiritually. You see, God is teaching something I think absolutely amazing through this sign of circumcision. God is teaching that man's seed is corrupted because of sin, and that is why we are born dead spiritually and must be born again. The flesh is always identified in the Bible as something that is sinful. Our flesh is always tied to our sin and our sin nature. Now, why the flesh of the foreskin? The flesh of the foreskin is cut away from that life-giving organ because it's a sign and a reminder before God allowed Abraham to give life, the flesh, a type or a picture of the sin nature, had to be cut away from his life-giving organ. 1 Peter 1.23, we are born again, how? Not of corrupted seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God that lives and abides forever. We are born again of that seed of Genesis 3.15. Uh, remember what God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. We're now born again of the woman's seed, that is Christ's seed. And it's not the corrupted seed of our father Adam, but rather the incorruptible seed of our Father which is in heaven. And God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision as a reminder that there's something wrong with man's seed. It was meant to give life, and it can only now give death. Now we're still not done. There's still more to this picture. Think about this. The foreskin is a veil covering man's reproductive organ. Cutting off the veil reveals a man's source of life. God made it this way because he's painting a picture that God would reveal through Christ himself who is the source of life. Now, this is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Think about the implications. Had Jesus not been born of a virgin, he would have been born of man's seed, and because he'd been born of man's seed, he would have been born of man's sin. Just like King David in Psalm 51, in sin my mother did conceive me. And that is why Genesis 3.15 gave the prophecy and the promise that this man would be born unlike any other man, because unlike any other man, he'd be born of the seed of the woman where every other man who's ever lived since the fall of Adam has been born the seed of a man. You see, it's the seed of the man that carries the seed of sin right back to Adam. But Jesus would be a man 
fully humanity, but unlike any other man, he'd also be fully deity because he would be the seed, not of an earthly father, but rather he'd be the seed only of his heavenly father. And because he indeed was born of his earthly father, he would not have man's corrupted seed because man's seed is corrupted. It passes on the sin nature. Jesus was not born of seed of a man, but rather God's seed. And that is why he had no sin nature. You see, we sin because we are sinners. But because Jesus was not born a sinner, he never ever sinned. And he then could become our sin sacrifice. Now, I want you to know something else. Amazing, mind-blowing the meticulous providence, not an accident, but providence of God, what he puts in scripture. When Christ died, remember, when he was crucified, according to Matthew 27, 51, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now remember, that veil would have stood, I don't know, maybe two stories high, okay? It tells us specifically it was torn in two from top to bottom, not from the bottom up. Wanted to make sure that we all knew this veil wasn't torn by the hand of men that would have been tearing it from the bottom up. It had to be torn from the hand of God from the top down. It was the veil that stood for centuries in the temple, separating the presence of men from the presence of God, from the inner court to the Holy of Holies. And that veil was torn in two. And of course, God was teaching that now we are welcome behind the veil by the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're now welcome in the presence of God anytime as the blood-bought children of God. This veil that was, think of it as a thick curtain, may have been four inches thick, that had hung there for century after century, separating the common people from the holy nature and the holiness of God. Now what God was doing, watch this, what God was doing was cutting away the veil, the foreskin, that we might be exposed to the source of life. I want you to see what, what God is doing. Connect the dots with me. This veil that stood in the temple in some way is a picture of circumcision as God cut away the veil that concealed the source of life. You think that's a stretch? It's not. Listen carefully. Hebrews 10, verse 20. Listen to what it says. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. God's absolutely amazing. No longer born dead. We can now be born again to be spiritually alive. You say, Phil, you need to repeat that. That seems like a stretch. Listen again. Hebrews 10, 20. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. You see, the cutting away of the veil, just as the cutting away of the flesh of the foreskin, a type or a picture of veil, is a picture of the new birth where the spirit is cut free from the flesh. That is the circumcision made without hands, Colossians 2 and verse 11, the circumcision of the heart that happens at the moment of salvation. And all of that for century after century after century, for 4,000 years leading up to the time of Christ with every baby that 
was circumcised of the Hebrews. God was drawing that picture again and again and again and again. And that was what God had in view when he told Abraham, who was dead, to take his foreskin and cut it away that the source of life might be revealed. This was all a picture of the spiritual circumcision that we received the moment we got saved. What happened? The Spirit of God took the Word of God like a knife, according to Hebrews 4.12, and cut away our flesh from our spirit, giving our spirit new life. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit the joints and the marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, what that says is the Spirit of God takes the Word of God like a scalpel and cuts away our flesh from our spirit so our spirit can live and the flesh dies. So the flesh no longer has to control our sinful fallen lives. And all of a sudden we can start living finally the Spirit-filled life that Jesus came to give us and God always had for us before Adam's sin and all that Adam lost in the garden, we can now have again, fully restored as the children of God. Listen carefully. God's absolutely amazing. I want you to see this just to make sure that we don't miss the point. God tells the Hebrews to circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day. Verse three, look at what it says. God is very specific. Not on the seventh day, not on the ninth day, not on the tenth day. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, medically, once again, we know today things that they couldn't have possibly known back then. We know that the vitamin K, which is the clotting vitamin, makes your blood clot in your body. It's at its highest levels ever on the eighth day of life. And so just from a clinical standpoint, yes, the eighth day was the obvious choice for circumcision. But once again, there's so much more going on than just a clinical or medical reason. The number eight, of course, is the number of new beginnings. The number seven, the number of completion. The number eight, the number of new beginning. Uh, Jesus arose from the dead on the eighth day which was Sunday, Resurrection Day, uh, the day that begins a new week. Uh, I want you to notice this pattern throughout Scripture. 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah the eighth person because he's the one who began again the human race, a new beginning. Seven, God's number of completion, but eight, God's number of new beginning. And that's exactly what God wants to do at the moment of salvation with this spiritual circumcision as he cuts our fallen flesh that's free now from our spirit. All of a sudden, we can live in resurrection life, a resurrected life, the newness of life. And all that's pictured here on the eighth day and for 4,000 years leading up to the time of Christ with every Hebrew baby boy, all of this was being pictured ahead of time. Now look at verse four. It says in verse four, she shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any holy or hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. And so uh, she's gone for seven days unclean on the eighth day, she goes to present her child to be circumcised. And then 
she's to continue for another 33 days before she's considered clean. That's 33 plus 7 for a total of 40 days. So when a Hebrew mama had a baby boy, she was considered unclean for a total of 40 days. Uh, once again, not hard to figure out what's going on here. The number 40 is the number of testing in biblical numerology. Uh, it rained on the earth for 40 days during the time of uh, Noah. Jesus was fasting and tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, so you can see that pattern in various places in Scripture. Uh, but now something is very interesting. Look at verse 5. Something, something happens that I can't fully explain. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her customary impurity. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. Something interesting happens here. If she bore a female baby, she's considered unclean exactly twice as long, 14 days plus 66 days for a total of 80 days, which means twice the test. Now, Phil, why would that be? I think it's obvious because women are twice as difficult as men. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist. <laughs> oh, I got to be careful these days. Listen, the answer is I honestly don't know, and I'm not sure anybody else can fully say. Uh, I think probably this goes back to the fall. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know that anybody can really say for sure why. There's some questions we'll have to ask when we get to heaven. And when we do, most of them probably won't matter. And the ones that we actually figure out will be like, well, of course, I should have seen it all along. I, I don't know for sure why it was different for female babies than it was for male babies. I'm convinced in some way, not sure, can't quite make the connection. It goes back to the fall in the garden. Genesis 3.16 tells us the woman, part of the curse of her sin would be that she would bear pain in her childbirth. Before the fall, giving birth for women would have been painless. And only after the fall did it become painful. Uh, look at verse 5 and note the phrase, the blood of her purifying. You see that phrase several times in this chapter, the blood of her purifying. What is God teaching? Listen, there's a problem with human birth. And the only way out is through the purification of blood. The blood of her purifying. A substitute will shed blood and purify your sins. Ladies, every single month, when you go through your menstruation, did you know that that is a reminder that there is something wrong now with man's birth? It was never meant to be, but that is because of the fall. And the good news is this, that one day God's plan will come full circle. Paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. Guys, I love you a bunch. Have a really, really awesome week. I'll see you next time. Leviticus chapter 12. Put it in the books. Ladies, I'm telling you, you're twice the test. I mean, it's in the Bible, isn't it? It's in the Bible. You read it yourself. <laughs> Lynn. Hang on just a second, sir. Oh, yeah. Okay. In the notes from uh, 
uh, from my Bible, John MacArthur's commentary, he said that apparently mothers were unclean twice as long, that's 80 days after the birth of a daughter, as a son, 40 days, which you talked about, right. which reflected the stigma on women for Eve's part in the fall. And then he says, this stigma is removed in Christ. And then see uh, the note on 1 Timothy, 2, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 14, 15. And it just says, and Adam was deceived, but the woman, was de uh, woman being deceived fell into transgression. 15, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So the stigma's gone away. Yeah. Because so that's of why I was, I mean, birth. you know, I alluded to that. It goes back to the garden. It goes back to the fall. And I think, you know, what John MacArthur is saying there is kind of the direction I'm heading there. But I don't know that anybody can really directly connect the dot here. Why is it 40 days for the giving birth to a little baby boy? And it's 80 days for giving birth to a little baby girl. There's an element there somewhere. MacArthur's onto it, and that's where a lot of people go. I think there's something there. Goes back to the the fall, um, but that's about as far as we can take it. I think anyway. To say much more about it, I think we move from you know it's okay to speculate. There's a connection there. Don't know what it is for sure. Uh, the stigma, you know that uh, in, in, you know with Eve in the garden. And it's true that she was deceived, Adam was not. Don't know. If you figure it out, you should write a theological commentary. You'll probably sell a lot of books. Lynn. He just sinned with his eyes wide open. Yeah, yeah, the stigma's really on Adam, not Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. So if there's a stigma here, I mean... It is Adam's sin that passed the death sentence onto the entire human race, not Eve's. So I agree with MacArthur there. There's a connection there somewhere. I don't, I don't know that I'd say it's the stigma that goes back to the women in the garden because the real stigma of sin is with the dudes. It's Adam. As by one man's sin, Romans 5.12 says. Not the woman's. As by one man's sin, death entered the world. All right, in the back. Um, I... I to throw this in on top of it, you know, uh, I was following the 66, knowing that God is interested in numbers since he wrote a whole book on them. And uh, in Strong's Concordance, I only found two places where it said threefold, uh, threefold and six, a three score, three score and six. It had three score, five, 10, 15, whatever, but only two places. One is in Leviticus, and the other one was in Genesis 46, 26 where it says that all the souls, I like King James better, that all the souls of Jacob that went down to Egypt besides his son's wives were 66. So the lineage, they were following the lineage through the father, the male, of 66. And then the 27, it says, and uh, Joseph's, or the sons, uh, and all the souls, Da, 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 da. And the sons of Joseph who were born in Egypt were two persons, males, okay? All the persons of the house of Jacob then in Egypt that went were 70. So if you take the 66 through the loins of Jacob down to Egypt, okay? And then Benjamin was already in Egypt because he was prisoner 
and Joseph that was there and his two sons, not counting his wife, okay, 66 plus 4, you get 70. So I wonder if it has something to do with the lineage coming through the male as opposed to, I don't know if uh, Jacob's other sons that went down, if they had married inside of the Hebrews or, you know, had taken wives from the people. They Everybody do this. Do this. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Could be, Nancy. Here, here's the deal. There's some things in Scripture, guys, that's the best you can do. Hmm. But, I, but see, you're thinking the right way. God is a God of patterns. And he does these for purposeful reasons. He wants us to be able to track him. He wants us to see where he's been so we understand where he's going. So when you see those patterns in Scripture, you start checking that out a little farther. All of a sudden, you connect it to another one, and a picture often begins to emerge. Now, in this case... I think maybe there's something to that. Don't know. We may never know fully, but there's definitely a pattern there that you're on to, Nancy. I'm proud of you for seeing that and finding that. It's good work there. Good work. Somebody else? Anybody? Yeah. Why do Catholics continue to see Mary as not a sinner? So why do Catholics continue to see Mary as not a sinner? I think it's unfortunate, don't you? I mean, that's just the, the unfortunate truth of Roman Catholicism. It was actually in the 1950s that the Pope, and I can't remember the name right now, uh, formally kind of uh, formally um, uh, made that declaration of uh, that doctrine of Mary's immaculate conception. She'd been worshipped as a sinless co-redemptrix for really millennia. And that's when it became kind of formal theology for the Catholic Church to see Mary as uh, sinless. So, uh, guys, unfortunately, it happens with uh, not just Roman Catholics, but in various churches and affiliations and traditions where the traditions of men begin to usurp the Word of God. And so this would be a situation where the traditions of men have clearly usurped the clear teaching of God's Word. Uh, because um, Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior, just like the rest of us. Uh, and we know that to be true. Because if you, if you look at the text, remember we just saw here, what was a woman who gave birth to a male baby to do on the eighth day? Present their baby to the temple, to the priest, for circumcision, and they would make a sacrifice. And as a poor family, Joseph and Mary brought the turtle doves on the eighth day. And in so doing, what was Mary and Joseph saying? Mary and Joseph, by bringing this sacrifice of this burnt offering, in essence, they were confessing that we're sinners. We need atonement. And that was why God taught them to bring a burnt offering, because they needed atonement. And so um, it's an unfortunate teaching of Roman Catholicism. And, uh, you know, it's true generally of you can find a false teaching in Probably every church affiliation, tradition, there's, uh, you know, there, there's traditions of men that enter in, and uh, that's one of them. Yeah. Okay, if um, um, it was a miracle that, that Abraham was able to have a child or conceive a child 
at his age, then what does that say for, for the birth of Ishmael? Yeah, you got to remember, um, Abraham couldn't bear a child with Sarah. It was Sarah that was barren. So it wasn't Abram or Abraham that was barren, okay? Because uh, Abraham, by this time, had fathered Ishmael 14 years before with Hagar. So the implication would be that 14 years earlier, he still had seed, that he could still give life. It wasn't until he was 99, 14 years later, after the birth of Ishmael, that we're told that his body was dead, that he could no longer give life. And so I, I think the only implication there would be that Sarah was barren, um, Abraham was not. He could give life. He, was, he, he, had, he had the seed. But they had no children because it was Sarah that was barren. So remember the story, it was Sarah's idea. Uh, hey, why don't you go into my handmaid, Hagar? And this was very customary in the ancient days uh, that a man that did not have an heir, especially a wealthy man, a man of esteem like Abram would have been, that he would, he would have a surrogate to bear his heir. And so uh, this was uh, Sarah's idea. That because I can't give you an heir, go into Hagar, and she will bear your heir. Of course, they quickly realized this was a bad idea. Uh, Sarah quickly changed her mind afterwards. And, uh, of course, you got Abraham, the father of the faith. Hey, okay, sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Not one of his finer moments either, huh? Hey, I said it because, you know, it ought to give hope for some of us, right? I mean, we've all had some boneheaded moments, haven't we, along the way? Uh-huh. Yeah, there was that. Adam had a boneheaded moment, too. It cost us all, right? Here, here's the point. The heroes of the faith, the heroes of the Bible, all had some really, really terrible moments along the way, didn't they? See, it ought, it ought to give all of us some encouragement, because uh, we all know that we've had some boneheaded moments, too. And here's the point. God's not done with me and you. And so uh, you, have, uh, you have Abraham and Sarah that all of a sudden they couldn't see the work of God. They saw the promise of God, but we don't see the work of God. And uh, here's what we all learned from this, that we don't get to skip the process to get to the fulfillment of the promise. It had been years and years they had the promise. They didn't know they were in process. You're in the middle of a miracle may not even know it. Don't give up too soon. So all that to say, uh, 14 years earlier, he still had the seed. Uh, and it's not unlike today. You know, back then, as you get closer to Adam, men were still living longer. Uh, and so they were still bearing children much later. The farther back to Adam you get, it wasn't until really the days of Abram that you start seeing the lifespans really fall off into kind of what we know would be normal for today. But it's not even unusual today for men clear up into their 60s to be able to bear children. I'm not saying you should. I'm not suggesting it's a good idea. I'm just saying men can actually give life much longer than a lot of women who start going through menopause a lot earlier. Yep. Who else? Somebody. Mm -hmm. For the non-Jew, is it really necessary for circumcision? God wants circumcision of the heart, not the flesh. Yeah. So for the non-Jew, there is absolutely no spiritual significance to it. There is no uh, religious um, commandment for it. 
uh, and that was all settled. If you guys remember this in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts 15, this was the big debate in the early church. I mean, this was almost a split in the early days of Christianity. And uh, some of the early church fathers who were Jewish believed that Greeks and Romans, non-Jews who were coming to faith in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, they had to be circumcised. And so this was a big debate, doctrinally, of the early church fathers, the apostles, right? And uh, you can see this uh, in Acts 15, they have the Jerusalem Council, and the apostle Paul has been out there kind of in the other most parts of the earth, winning Greeks uh, to faith in Christ, the Jewish Messiah. And then you have some of them closer to home where the church is still largely Jewish, and this is no small issue between them. And so they come back, and they have the Jerusalem Council, and all the heavyweights kind of weigh into this. And in essence, what they decided at the end of the day is what we knew all along, is that, listen, non-Jews don't have to become Jews to follow the Jewish Messiah. Um, so the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and go through a Jewish rite outwardly, which is really all along, as you heard me say, just a sign of what God was going to do inwardly. Colossians 2.11, the circumcision of the heart. That's the real issue. And so consequently, John, in our Judeo-Christian culture, historically, um, little boys are circumcised. Uh, but it's more for a clinical reason, medical reason, has really very little spiritual or religious reason. And actually within the medical community, that's becoming, I think, probably from what I'm told by medical providers, even more controversial and in some cases less and less done today for various reasons. Um, Pastor, in, in Leviticus 12, when it spends time early discussing, you know, the purification timing for a woman, it then talks about instructions for the burnt offering and the sin offering. Why just those two offerings versus all five? So um, she could have brought all five, but she was mandated to bring the burnt offering and the sin offering. And I think because, uh, first of all, there could be no other offering until you would first brought the burnt offering. Every other offering follows the burnt offering. Every other offering is laid on top of the burnt offering, which, of course, has to do with uh, complete consecration. It'd be the only offering that was completely consumed in the fire, completely reduced to ash. But then the sin offering uh, was obviously mandated because what was she doing? We heard today, she is unclean because she has given birth to something that is dead. And in so doing, she was confessing, I've given birth to a sinner, in sin was this little one conceived, so she would bring a sin offering as an open confession that I'm a sinner in need of atonement. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And uh, so that's why you have the burnt offering, because it was really just to get to the sin offering. Good questions. Anybody else? Yeah. Larry? When you first started, you had mentioned something about um, controversy now with circumcision and stuff. Was, is that something you can expand yeah, on? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think there was a time in our Judeo-Christian culture, and again, Judeo-Christian cultures historically practice circumcision because it's a Jewish custom. And uh, Christianity was born out of Judaism. 
And we, we can never forget, we follow a Jewish Savior. We study a Jewish book written by Jewish authors. So consequently, even though America is largely Gentile, you'll find some what amounts to Jewish customs within our American culture. I mean, even our American weddings today, if you were to look at our customs, even today, as it pertains to a wedding, you'd see a lot of ancient Jewish custom and culture that is still in our modern cultures and customs today. Well, circumcision would be one of those, where at one time in American history, especially among urban children, uh, less so in rural America, where um, babies were often born in the backwoods until honestly just a few decades ago, and you might, and a midwife or a country doctor might deliver them, and uh, sometimes in rural America, circumcision wouldn't have been practiced so much, but in urban America, almost every baby boy was circumcised, and nobody questioned it, nobody even thought about it. And so when I say it's becoming more controversial, uh, it's become increasingly controversial within the medical community, just in terms of, is this a good practice? Is it not? Just from a clinical standpoint. And I think part of it too, Larry, is because we're becoming more and more secular. We're less and less of a Judeo-Christian culture. And so consequently, because we are losing our values as a Judeo-Christian culture, anything associated with that Judeo-Christian heritage, I think, is increasingly being resisted and anybody that knows anything about circumcision knows that circumcision has always been a sign associated largely with the Jews. I think that's it. Anyway, so I, let me do one more before we leave, all right? Because uh, I told you we can talk about anything. I'm going to answer your question tonight. Is that okay? Is that all right? Okay. So... Um, Revelation chapter 13, okay? And by the way, um, if you ever email me a question and I don't get back to you within like 48 hours, trust me, I didn't get your email, all right? I promise you, uh, I, I really mean that because, uh, I mean, I get a lot of emails and once in a while somebody asks me, hey, did you get my email? And, uh, you know, it's three weeks later and I still haven't answered you. I promise I'm not blowing you off, okay? I just don't know why I didn't get it. So don't give up on me is what I'm saying. Resend it if you have a question or something. Uh, but I made the statement a while back, apparently, and I made the statement that, um, you know, 2 Thessalonians 2.9 tells us that one day the Antichrist will come and he will deceive masses with lying signs and wonders. In other words, miracles that lie, Okay. Hey, God does miracles. Jesus did miracles to prove that he was the Messiah. But check this out. The devil can do those too. And so if you're trying to authenticate the work of God through miracles and associate this as the miracles of God with the work of God, be careful because you can easily be deceived. Uh, this is the age of signs and wonders and lots of well-meaning, Jesus-loving Christians pursuing signs and wonders as though you know, the work of the Holy Spirit can only be authenticated with miracles, okay, signs and wonders. And let me just remind you of something, guys. Signs and wonders were not normal even in the apostolic age, even in the early days of Christianity, the first century church. You know how I know? Because if they were normal, they would have ceased to have been a sign, they would have ceased to have been a wonder. You, tr you tracking with me? All right, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says... 
that signs and wonders were meant only for the apostles. They were the signs of an apostle. In other words, God gave the apostles the ability to work miracles so that people would know who the true apostles were from the false apostles. Lots of counterfeit apostles in the early days of Christianity. But God set apart the true apostles by the ability to do miracles. Remember Peter, for example, as he was going to the temple. He's, he's this man who uh, everybody knew uh, could not walk. He was lame. He says, gold and silver I have not, but what I have I freely give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And the man walked. It was a miracle. And people believed. Okay, Peter had the ability to do that as an apostle. That was a sign of an apostle. Not just anybody could do that. Or it would have ceased to have been a sign. But this is the age of signs and wonders, guys. And, and I certainly believe God still does miraculous things. He's still a God that works wonders and does wonders. But understand, that doesn't mean that the work of the Holy Spirit is always going to be associated with the miraculous. And if that were true, it ceased to be a sign. And so I've kind of warned people, I'm not sure this is the context I was saying this or not, but the point is this, in the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to come, he's going to be empowered by Satan to do signs and wonders. Remember, Satan is a counterfeiter of God, he counterfeits all that God is, he counterfeits all that God does. And uh, I made the statement that in Revelation chapter 13, he will even allow the false prophet to call fire down from heaven, mimicking exactly the miracle that Elijah did on Mount Carmel. And it says these words in Revelation 13 regarding the false prophet in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. Now, two horns like a lamb. That sounds like who? Jesus. Jesus is the lamb. This is one that will look like Jesus, act like Jesus, be Christ-like in appearance, yet he speaks as a dragon. Who's the dragon? Hello, yes, right? Not hard to figure out the Bible, is it? As I've said before, not hard to understand, just sometimes hard to believe. So you have somebody who looks like Jesus, who mimics Jesus. He's got two horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. In other words, he looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, beware, for false Christ will come among you. You have a false Christ here. He looks like Christ, he acts like Christ, but he speaks as a dragon. In other words, he speaks with heresy and blasphemy. Uh, he will erode, he will attack the deity of Christ, even though he himself will act like Christ, look like Christ, perhaps even be followed as Christ, this false prophet, this religious figure. And look what it says. It says in verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. That's the Antichrist, the political figure whose deadly wound was healed, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, it happens to be that that is one of the miracles that he will mimic. Elijah on Mount Carmel calls fire down from heaven as he faces down the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah being a true prophet of God, a true man of God, it was a true miracle sent from God. But now you have Satan the dragon, through the false prophet, guess what he's doing? Calling fire down from heaven. Here's the point. 
He counterfeits even the miracles of God. The only way you can authenticate the work of the Spirit of God is through the Word of God. Guys, this has to become your filter for how you define the truth. Because if you try to define the work of the Spirit through signs, wonders, and miracles, be careful because Satan can do them too. So, does that answer your question? Is that good? Okay. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, Lynn. Right. Now, we studied this in Revelation a year ago. Like, you guys could get me off on this so fast. I mean, we could get off on Revelation again so fast. I mean, it's just, that word image is the Greek word icon. From what we get the word icon. What it means in the Greek is an exact replicate. Now, remember, you have John, a first century fisherman with the limit of first century language, trying to describe things 2,000 years in the future. Imagine John trying to describe a modern airplane. There's no word that's been invented for that. Imagine John trying to describe a modern military tank. There's no word that's been invented for that. Imagine John trying to describe a clone. There's no word for that. He uses the word icon instead, an exact replicate. I'm personally convinced that this image of the beast is a clone because it tells us the false prophet gives him the ability to have breath and speak, but he does not use the word life. He uses the word breath. You see, God alone can give life. It says he's given him breath, but that's different than life. He gives him pneuma, which is breath, but not zui, which is a soul. So again, God is very meticulous in the words he uses. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, oh yeah, the implications are pretty staggering, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that revelation study is online. Uh, go to our sermon page, and you can find, just click on Revelation. We did a verse-by-verse -verse study through Revelation a year ago, like we're doing Leviticus now. So guys, it's like a quarter till. We're out of time. Love it, don't you? I'm so glad you're here. Uh, let me pray for us, and then uh, guess what? It's like Patriotic Sunday, all-church picnic next week. So the bad news is we will not be here. Hey, the good news is we're going to be over there. And guys, I'm telling you, it's going to be an awesome day. So General Jerry Boykin is coming to preach next week. If you don't know who Jerry Boykin is, Google him this week. I'm talking one of the most decorated servants of our day, not just of uh, country as in our military, but I'm talking God, servant of God, real man of God. He's coming to preach the Word of God. He's going to do a really, really awesome job. He's got a sermon he entitled, um, God Loves the Warrior. Uh, and he's going to do just a great job ministering the gospel Sunday morning. And then Sunday night, we've got like this bluegrass band come in and, uh, you know, tents. And we've got, uh, you know, pie and ice cream and watermelon. And uh, we're going to have some games. It's just going to be a fun night. And then we're baptizing like, I don't know, hundreds. <laughs> hundreds. I mean, lots. Maybe not hundreds, but lots and lots, okay? 
So it's going to be a great night next Sunday night. So don't come here. Go over there behind the buildings where we're going to be. And then I think come July, we're going to get in uh, finally kind of a good rhythm uh, for the well with a lot of the holidays and Mother's Day and Father's Day and all that behind us. And we'll start making some real progress through Leviticus then on Sunday afternoons. Lord, thank you for a chance to gather once again with the wonderful, amazing people you've given us, Lord. Thank you for the body of Christ and, Lord, for the Word of God that we can study, Lord. And I thank you that you have showed us so much in the revelation, God, Lord, that you've given us. I pray, God, in the days ahead that it would be more than information, that it would be transformation, that, Lord, you would equip us to increasingly be a witness for you, And, Lord, that you would give us greater, I pray, understanding and expectation, Lord, knowing that one day soon we're going to see you. Lord, fill us, God, with your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, have an awesome night and a great week, okay? See you Sunday. Father